this is Jeff Tweedy from Wilco, and you're listening to WMNF Tampa. Welcome to WMNF 88.5 FM and WMNF.org. You're listening to the Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. We have two topics on the show today. The common theme is people who are challenging new laws in Florida. Later on in the show, we're going to hear about new education laws, laws like Don't Say Gay and Stop Woke and how they're impacting schools. We'll speak with the president of the Pinellas Classroom Teachers Association. So if you care about education, maybe you have kids in school or maybe you know a teacher, I hope you stay tuned for that discussion. But first up, we're going to hear from people who are challenging Florida's new abortion law. Last week, an appeals court rejected a temporary injunction that would have blocked Florida's new law that bans abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. That led a doctor and abortion clinics to petition the Florida Supreme Court to review the court's decision. Last month, a circuit judge ruled that the abortion law violated a privacy clause in Florida's constitution. When lawyers for the state appealed the judge's decision, which effectively allowed the abortion ban to go into effect, the case it, it, that's happening as the case works its way through the courts. So now we're going to hear from some of the people who are trying to stop the 15-week ban on abortions in Florida. They held an online press conference earlier this month before the latest court filings. So here we're going to hear from Whitney White, who is a staff attorney with the ACLU Reproductive Freedom Project. We're also going to hear from Dr. Robin Schickler, and she is a uh, the chief medical officer at Planned Parenthood of Southwest and Central Florida. We'll hear from Stephanie Lorraine Pinheiro, who's executive director of the abortion fund called Florida Access Network. And then we'll hear from Kelly Flynn, who is CEO of A Woman's Choice Clinics in Jacksonville. So while you're listening to them, you can email or text your thoughts and I'll read them on the air afterwards. The Email address is dj at wmnf.org. You can text 813-433-0885. Please sign your name if you do text us. So here are the four people who are part of that uh, suing the state of Florida about the new abortion law in Florida. You, together with the ACLU of Florida, Planned Parenthood Federation of America, the Center for Reproductive Rights, and the law firm Jenner and Block, filed a brief and a motion in the Florida Supreme Court on behalf of a group of Florida abortion providers who are challenging the harmful 15-week abortion ban under Florida's state constitution. In today's filings, the plaintiffs have asked the court to accept jurisdiction and block the ban. The ban, which is known as HB5, criminalizes abortion care after 15 weeks of pregnancy and imposes a strict government mandate that threatens healthcare providers with felony prosecution and imprisonment for providing essential medical care to their patients. This law is plainly unconstitutional under decades of established Florida law. In 1980, Floridians amended their state constitution to provide an explicit right of privacy that is not found in the United States Constitution. In the decades since then, the Florida Supreme Court has consistently and repeatedly held that this right of privacy protects the right of Floridians to decide for themselves without government interference, whether to continue a pregnancy or to have an abortion. But despite the clear unconstitutionality of this law, HB5 has been in effect since July 1st. 
denying women and others who can become pregnant their fundamental constitutional rights, and putting patients in need of abortion care in harm's way. Today's filing was necessary because over the past months, the lower courts in Florida have repeatedly closed off meaningful legal avenues to block HB5, despite the obvious harm to patients' health, lives, futures, and fundamental rights that it is causing. In early July, a circuit court in Leon County entered a preliminary injunction against the law after a full-day evidentiary hearing at which the court heard from multiple witnesses. Based on the evidence in the law, the circuit court correctly found that the ban is likely unconstitutional under the state constitution and that it would cause immediate and irreparable harm to patients in need of abortions if it were allowed to take effect. However, the state immediately appealed that ruling triggering an automatic stay of the injunction under Florida law. And despite repeated efforts by plaintiffs, the lower courts have refused to lift that automatic stay. As a result, the preliminary injunction has not actually taken effect, and HB5's unconstitutional ban has been preventing patients from accessing the care they need for more than six weeks now, forcing people to carry pregnancies against their will with potentially life-altering and life-threatening consequences. Being denied a wanted abortion causes serious harm. It forces pregnant people to endure the serious health risks of continued pregnancy and childbirth, and research shows that it makes it harder for people to escape poverty, derails their educational and career plans, and makes it more difficult to escape an abusive partner. These harms are continuing every day that HB5 is allowed to remain in effect. In the most recent decision in this case, the First District Court of Appeal held that the plaintiffs, a group of reproductive health clinics and a physician who provide abortions in Florida, do not have legal standing to seek to block the law. That ruling, which ignores the undeniable harm the law is causing, essentially closes the door on the provider's legal challenge. It also directly conflicts with how the Florida Supreme Court has evaluated similar challenges to abortion laws in the past. On numerous occasions, Florida courts have granted and upheld injunctive relief to abortion providers just like the plaintiffs in this case, who sue on behalf of their patients when their patients are harmed by dangerous abortion restrictions like HB5. In the filings today, and for those reasons, plaintiffs have asked the Florida Supreme Court to step in, correct that conflict, and block HB5 while the litigation continues. And as you will hear from the other speakers on this call, Florida's ban is continuing to cause devastating harm to patients' health and well-being every single day it remains in effect. And that's why we've asked the Florida Supreme Court to urgently step in and protect the fundamental rights that Floridians have relied on for nearly 50 years. Thank you. And I'll now hand things over to our next speaker, Dr. Robin Schickler. Thank you, Whitney. Um, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Dr. Robin Schickler. I am an OBGYN and abortion provider and the Chief Medical Officer of Planned Parenthood of Southwest and Central Florida. So as of July 1st of 2022, abortions after 15 weeks have been banned in the state of Florida. Um, so that means we have not been able to provide this medical care to our patients. Um, the, the law includes exceptions for maternal life or health and for fetal fetal abnormalities. However, these exceptions are very narrow and it forces our doctors to choose between guessing what would constitute a threat to maternal life and what constitutes a fatal fetal abnormality or denying that care. So I often get asked why someone would come to us to have an abortion after 15 weeks. In general, 
there could be a number of reasons why people have abortions, and that doesn't change when someone hits 15 weeks. One of the reasons that we see patients after 15 weeks is when something's wrong with the pregnancy, so a fetal anomaly. This is something that typically cannot be detected until after 15 weeks. So for example, I've had several patients um, in the past who've come in because the fetus had something very significantly wrong with the heart and it wasn't detected until their 19-week anatomy scan. Another reason why someone might not get an abortion until after 15 weeks is because they didn't know they were pregnant. So some people have irregular periods, absent periods. Some people even have some regular bleeding while pregnant and think they're having a period. So by the time that they realize they're pregnant, they may be beyond 15 weeks. I had a patient who thought she was eight weeks by a period. It was not a period. It was some bleeding during her pregnancy. And we did her ultrasound and she was already 16 weeks. So we had to uh, refer her out. Another reason is fear, um, especially in our young patients. I remember having a 16-year-old who first didn't realize for some time that she was pregnant because she did have irregular periods. And then when she found out, she didn't want to tell anyone. She didn't want to tell her parents. By the time she got the courage to tell her parents and come in, she was 19 weeks. So these patients that I've seen in the past, they can no longer obtain an abortion in our state. We have had to navigate patients out to other states where it is legal to obtain an abortion after 15 weeks. So we've, we've had mothers who were just told that their baby has some sort of significant problem, but maybe doesn't qualify as a fatal fetal abnormality. She just had to deal with this diagnosis and now um, has to be told that she's got to leave her home. She's got to get transportation to get to the nearest next state take time off of work, find childcare for her other children, and get to another clinic if she wants to terminate the pregnancy. It means that the teenager that I saw who was on birth control and not having periods, um, now at 18 weeks, was faced with the decision to figure out how to travel out of the state, get her parents' permission, or be forced to continue the pregnancy. And because the exceptions to the law are so narrow, it means that the patient who breaks her water early at 18 weeks, whose fetus still has cardiac activity, who is at risk of severe bleeding and infection um, and even death, may not even have the choice to have an abortion until there is no longer cardiac activity, until she starts heavily bleeding, or until she gets an infection because her doctor might be too scared of going to jail and being charged with a felony to be confident that the exception for maternal life have been met and that a prosecutor will or won't agree with them. So all of these cases represent real people that I've seen dealing with what might be one of their most complex and challenging times in their life. The ban only makes this challenging and complex time even harder. An abortion is simply a medical procedure. It's a necessary component of medical care. And these patients are no longer able to obtain this necessary evidence-based medical care in our state of Florida. Uh, my name is Stephanie Lorraine Pinedo. I am the executive director of Florida Access Network. We are an abortion fund in the state of Florida, um, supporting Floridians access reproductive care.
In the time since uh, HB5 has passed, we've seen a direct impact on our community. While Fan is not a plaintiff on this case, we are fully in support of this litigation because we've seen the way this ban has deeply impacted this community. Fan has received re support requests for over 300 people requesting support in paying for over a quarter million dollars in abortion appointments alone. And this is not including the thousands it will cost to support their travel costs because they have to travel due to this ban. Um, this abortion ban compounded with the overturning of Roe has caused fear and uncertainty with folks about their abortion appointments, but not because they're unsure if they want to continue their pregnancy or if they want to have an abortion, but because of the willful misinformation and abortion stigma perpetuated by anti-abortion politicians and pundits. Anti-abortion zealots are emboldened more than ever to perpetuate lies and harm about abortion care. In Orlando recently, a city employee was suspended from their job for using a city vehicle to block a clinic entrance. This behavior is not uncommon. Anti-abortion protesters have a long history of violence against providers, patients, and volunteers outside of abortion clinics. Abortion bans like the, this 15-week ban are designed to shame people, providers, and abortion care workers into silence. And we stand firm that having, wanting, and needing an abortion is nothing to be ashamed of. And Florida Access Network is going to continue to do what we've always done, um, caring for our clients with compassion and supporting Floridians needing to navigate abortion care and disrupting abortion stigma. I'm Kelly Flynn, a proud abortion care provider and the president and CEO of A Woman's Choice of Jacksonville, an independent clinic I opened 20 years ago. People have and will always need abortion as an option. This was true 50 years ago when Roe was decided. It was true 20 years ago. It is true today and it will be true in the future. Generations of people have relied on the right to abortion to make fundamental decisions about their health, their future, education, career, and lives. This 15-week abortion ban forces pregnant people who need time-sensitive care to travel thousands of miles to a state where care is available. This unnecessarily delays access to health care and forces pregnant people to carry an unwanted pregnancy to term against their will. Unfortunately, we've seen this harsh reality firsthand too many times in the last month. Just last week, an unhoused patient, Amanda, called our hotline desperate to schedule an abortion. Amanda told our patient navigator she wasn't sure how she could afford to support a child when she couldn't afford to take care of herself. Amanda was unaware of the 15-week abortion ban in Florida and cried when she was told that she couldn't receive her care here and would force, be forced to travel elsewhere to receive her care. This week, Krista arrived at the clinic for a 24-hour in-person consult with a doctor, and during her ultrasound, our staff determined she was six days past the Florida Week's 15-week ban. She had already taken time off from work to attend the consult and was now worried about additional time off from work and the cost of travel and lodging expenses to get care in North Carolina. I'm relieved to say that our patient navigators worked closely with three abortion and practical support organizations to make sure that Krista and Amanda were able to receive funding for their travel, lodging, and abortions. It shouldn't be this way. Yet there are countless patients in Florida like Krista and Amanda that are desperate for care after 15 weeks and have already faced so many restrictions and obstacles to access care in their hometown. Forcing Floridians to travel to another state to access health care is cruel. People are suffering from this dangerous ban. We urge the Florida Supreme Court to restore patient rights to access abortion care after 15 weeks. Floridians want access to safe, 
legal abortion and want to protect this extremely personal healthcare decision. This devastation, this devastating bad ban, sorry, and the parade of countless abortion restrictions threatens Floridians' bodily autonomy. They constrain Florida's freedom of religion and invade their medical care and doctor-patient relationship. Each patient's circumstance is unique, and it's why one-size-fits-all policies driven by medically inaccurate rhetoric are harmful and cruel. Politics and the misinformed thought of politicians should never be permitted to outweigh scientific evidence. A woman's choice of Jacksonville is focused on protecting the health and lives of our patients. This abortion ban is not about dignity. It is about controlling Floridians' bodies, and we deserve better. A woman's choice of Jacksonville is a proud is proud to be an abortion provider because we know that abortion is safe and that it saves lives. We hope the, the Florida Supreme Court stands for Floridians' right to privacy and bodily autonomy. That was Kelly Flynn, CEO of A Woman's Choice Clinics. We also heard from Stephanie Lorraine Pinheiro, Executive Director of the Abortion Fund called Florida Access Network. We heard from Dr. Robin Schickler, the Chief Medical Officer at Planned Parenthood of Southwest and Central Florida, and from Whitney White, who's a staff attorney with the ACLU Reproductive Freedom Project. They want courts to stop Florida's new law that bans most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. They say the law criminalizes essential abortion care and threatens to imprison doctors for providing care to their patients. Well, uh, what are your thoughts? If you'd like to weigh in, you can text us at 813-433-0885 or email dj at wmnf.org. You're listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canaan on WMNF Tampa. And uh, later in the show, we'll take your calls at 813-239-9663. I want to remind you that we're going to turn the conversation very quickly, pretty soon to education in Florida. So let me read a couple of emails that came in during while the, that tape was on. Uh, David writes, I've always wondered how many of these Florida legislators have ordered abortions for mistresses while philandering. I think that many or most of them are hypocrites for supporting such severe abortion bans. David goes on to say, I'm also very worried about the outsized political influence of born again Christians on Florida and national politics. I think we'd be better off if their spiritual awakening was aborted before they could be born again, he says, and then laughs at his joke. So thank you, David, for that uh, for that uh, comment. Also, um, DeMarco writes in, abortion bans are femicide, and then there's a, 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 a few quotes. So I can't read all that stuff, but thanks for writing in. I uh, appreciate those uh, those thoughts for sending those in. Well, let's turn now. We can continue to talk about the the abortion ban and uh, the legal avenues to that that are trying to defeat it, to trying trying to overturn it. But we are also, excuse me, we're also going to talk in this show about education issues. In just a few minutes, we're going to be joined by Nancy Velarde, who is the president of the Pinellas Classroom Teachers Association, the teachers union there in Pinellas County. So I hope you stay tuned to the show for that. But first, we're going to hear a story that WMNF's McKenna Schuler filed this month. Florida is facing a teacher shortage. She spoke with some Pinellas teachers about that and about how hard it is for teachers to make ends meet. You're listening to WMNF Tampa 88.5 FM. Florida ranks near dead last nationwide in average teacher pay. And a combination of insufficient wages and a higher cost of living is driving a teacher shortage that in some districts is reaching crisis levels. Brennan Pickett is an English teacher at St. Petersburg High School and an active member of his union. I, I can't make it in this district with what I'm being paid. I, I, 
I've been, I'm trying to apply for a mortgage. I'm trying to start a family of my own. I also want to have children. I want to, you know, I want to be just like my parents. The Pinellas Classroom Teachers Association has asked the district for an 11.3% pay raise, arguing that matches the county's cost of living index increase over the past year. In response, the district told the union last month to be realistic, a comment another local teacher found offensive. When we're telling people to be realistic, what are we telling teachers? What are we telling the fewer and fewer young people that even want this job? What am I supposed to tell my students when I can't afford to be their teacher anymore? That was Philip Bel Castro speaking at a recent Pinellas County School Board meeting. Like Pickett, he also teaches English at St. Petersburg High School. Leaders with the Pinellas Teachers Union actually walked out of negotiations with the district last week after they offered a business as usual three and a quarter percent pay raise. After walking out, Union President Nancy Velarde called the offer insulting. I have been telling them this has to be different. This cannot be business as usual. The district says they don't have the funds available for the requested raise. The union is calling on the district to dip into their reserves, essentially the rainy day fund. In Hillsborough County, the union is also at an impasse with the district, largely over pay. Brennan Pickett, the local teacher, says he sees that kids are struggling with mental health and lingering consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic. When teachers quit, that makes a school environment even less stable and consistent for students. It also leads to bigger class sizes, which puts even greater stress on teachers. Local teachers say the way to keep teachers in schools and attract new qualified educators is to give teachers the resources they need right now. They also need the community to show up to meetings and email the district to voice support for the better raise. What these people in the district are doing is they're just pushing the status quo from the Tallahassee and we could be doing better. Pinellas can be doing better. For WMNF, I'm McKenna Schuler. Well, thanks to McKenna for that report. I appreciate you filing that. And we're, we're uh, talking about education issues for the rest of the hour. And my guest is going to join me by Zoom momentarily, I hope. And um, we're going to talk about education. And here's, let me read this partial summary of this story about the um, don't say gay bill and about pushback by educators about that. Lawyers for a group of parents, students, and nonprofit organizations have asked a federal judge to halt school districts from carrying out a controversial state law that restricts instruction on gender identity and sexual orientation. Last week, the lawyers filed a motion for a preliminary injunction in a lawsuit that was launched in July against the school boards in Orange, Indian River, Duval, and Palm Beach counties. The motion contends that the law, which was passed this year by a Republican-controlled legislature and signed by Governor Ron DeSantis, was enacted with the purpose to discriminate and has the effect of discriminating against LGBTQ students and those with LGBTQ family members. So I'm going on to read from this article. The law, which has drawn nationwide attention, prevents instruction on gender identity and sexual orientation in kindergarten through third grade and requires such instruction be age appropriate in accordance with state academic standards in older grades. They also cited steps, these are the people who are suing, also cited steps that the school districts have taken to try to comply with the law. As an example, they wrote that the Duval, Indian River, and Palm Beach school districts have reduced or eliminated LGBTQ student-supported guides, student support guides, that is, and anti-bullying guidance. There's also another case that is a, a 
um, complaining and criticizing Florida's Don't Say Gay bill, which is, is also called Parental Rights in Education. Opponents have also challenged the constitutionality of the measure in a federal lawsuit that was filed in Tallahassee against the State Board of Education, the Florida Department of Education, Education Commissioner Manny Diaz Jr., and several school boards. That case is pending. So again, we're talking today about education. And I hope to have very soon with me, the president of the Pinellas Classroom Teachers Association join me by Zoom. Uh, In the meantime, I hope maybe you can call in if you have any thoughts about education in Florida or any of these laws that are are new that are affecting education, like the parental rights and education bill that critics call Don't Say Gay. Also the Stop Woke bill, which uh, is getting, uh, keeping people from talking about certain certain touchy subjects, I I guess you might say from reading the bill. Uh, Another thing we could talk about is, oh, let me give out the telephone numbers. 813-239-9663. If you'd like to talk about education, give us a call right now. 813-239-9663. You can also text us at 813-433-0885 or email dj at wmnf.org. Are your kids in school or do you have a friend or loved one who's a teacher? And have they been impacted by any of these new policies in the state of Florida? Let us know, 813-239-9663. School boards also seem to be getting more politicized. They are nonpartisan races, but as we're gonna hear in just a second, Governor DeSantis donated to and campaigned for 30 candidates that were up in the primary elections this month. The Democratic Party responded by releasing a list of endorsements. And in Broward County, Governor DeSantis got rid of four women on the school board and their replacements, his replacements uh, were sworn in today. So here's, I'm gonna read this article here from the News Service of Florida. Governor Ron DeSantis took the unusual step this year of campaigning for county school board candidates and saw most of them win on Tuesday night as the governor and local Republicans seek to elect conservative members to the boards and at least in some cases create conservative majorities. In the run-up to Tuesday's primary elections, DeSantis released a slate of 30 endorsements of what he called pro-parent candidates for school boards. 19 of those candidates won races outright on Tuesday and six advanced to the November general election. DeSantis' campaign spokesperson said the campaign is counting the results as 25 wins. Since July, the governor's political committee, which is called Friends of Ron DeSantis, has given a $1,000 contribution to all 30 candidates and the campaign billed that as the first time a governor has made significant investments in the non in nonpartisan races. But the last two years have seen school boards become partisan battlegrounds. DeSantis and his administration have engaged in high profile clashes with school boards that he accused of not respecting parental rights on issues such as mask requirements during the COVID-19 pandemic. DeSantis also made weekend appearances leading up to last week's primary elections to boost his favored candidates. And this quote is coming as, uh, from DeSantis. He says, this is new, particularly for Republicans, because that has basically been unions would back candidates and that would be it. And so now I think more parents are interested. Some of our voters are interested. We have, 
We have no consequential races really statewide that are competitive. So if you have a situation where this may be one reason why people are motivated, so we try to help out this weekend. So that's a quote from Ron DeSantis as he was campaigning for school boards uh, members who were trying to be elected last Tuesday during the primary elections. And after Tuesday's results, some county Republican parties celebrated a flip in the makeup of school boards. So we're going to talk about that with our guest who is joining us now. Joining us now. Oh, uh, we can hear you. We can hear you. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Hang on one second, please. Um, We are going to be joined in just a second as soon as we can um, figure out how not to get an echo. The let's see. Is this any better? Yes, I think we can. Can you hear us, Nancy? I want to welcome to our WMNF Tampa, our Tuesday Cafe, Nancy Velarde, president of the Pinellas Classroom Teachers Association, the teachers union there in Pinellas County. Welcome so much to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. And as we're talking about education issues, we'll get to all the really controversial stuff in just a minute. But first of all, just how has the school year started in Pinellas County and across Florida? It it was actually quite successful. Um, One thing our teachers are very good at doing is making sure that whatever uh, craziness is going on behind the scenes, the children don't ever really feel that. They are very good at making them feel welcome and uh, cared for. And that's basically how the opening went. Behind the scenes, they might be a little stressed and concerned, but the children never get to see it. I want to remind people that our guest is Nancy Velarde, the president of the Pinellas Classroom Teachers Association. And before you joined us, Nancy, we heard a story from one of our reporters who was talking about a couple of things in in Pinellas County. One was that there was a shortage at the time of 400 people in the Pinellas County um, education in in Pinellas County schools. How short of teaching personnel and other staff is the district now? Um, I would say the number for instructional personnel is about 200 and support personnel is, um, I would say, 225. Um, So, yes, we are still looking at those numbers and um, support personnel can include anything from cafeteria workers, bus drivers, um, plant operators to maintain the schools, uh, maintenance workers and our support in the classroom Um, our teacher aides and our special ed um, assigned aides. How is Pinellas County dealing with that shortage, especially in the classroom? Is Pinellas hiring subs to teach these students? Are they combining classes? And does the county get teachers from a temp agency? Uh, They don't use a temp agency. I do know that they do use substitutes when necessary. But what they have done, because our student count was a little bit down from what they anticipated, some units have been cut. Units, we hate to be called units, but units are the teachers. Um, And that has helped balance out where they can move teachers around to where the cuts had to be made. But for the most part, the class sizes are larger in, in basically that is what most teachers are experiencing is that their class large uh, sizes are larger than they have been. And in the past, they've already been using the school average instead of following the class size amendment as written. Um, so class sizes have been rather large for years. 
uh, they're slightly larger so far this year. How does that impact a student's education? As you could well expect, a teacher has a hard time giving individual attention to each child um, when the numbers are, are higher, obviously. Um, I, as a teacher of 20 years, I know that I went from in about, about five years ago, I went from having about 150 kids a day as a high school teacher to 180 kids a day. Um, that's quite a difference. I found that I definitely had less ability to reach to each child individually. It definitely put a strain on those personal relationships that are necessary for success. I want to remind people that we're speaking with Nancy Velarde, president of the Pinellas Classroom Teachers Association. That's the teachers union in Pinellas. And you're listening to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe on 88.5 FM. I'm Sean Canan. And if you have an email for us, to, if you have a question, give us a shout at dj at wmnf.org. You can also text 813-433-0885 or call 813-239-9663. So Nancy, the... Uh, the Teachers Union was in the process of bargaining with the Pinellas County School District for a contract or new 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 bargaining contract. So what's the status of that now? When we heard a story from McKenna that she produced, our, our reporter produced a couple of weeks ago, the two sides were really at an impasse. Uh, has Pinellas County Teachers uh, Classroom Teachers Association returned to the bargaining table yet with the school district? Yes, we have been sitting down. We also have some unofficial conversations about um, cuts that would need to be made in order to provide the teachers with a salary commensurate with the inflation rise in Pinellas. Many of our teachers are young, uh, single, and renters. And renters were hit extraordinarily hard in this latest boom of inflation. Um, and they are struggling. And we, that is why many of our teachers are leaving Pinellas, not necessarily because they don't like their job or don't want to keep their job, but they simply can't afford to live here. Um, when we talk about cuts, we certainly don't want to deprive the children of anything that they deserve. Public education is absolutely the best place for a child to get all services rendered. Uh, what we're talking about is some of these electronic programs that the district has invested in in the last couple of years um, and they are educationally unfulfilling for both the teacher and student. Students don't like them, the teachers don't like them and they don't do the same job as a flesh and blood teacher in the classroom with a child. So we are looking to break those contracts and let some of those expenses go so that you can pay the people who are in the classroom and who actually are the ones who provide the success. And you mentioned more pay for teachers, but are there other things that you're looking for in addition to just uh, getting more pay so that people can afford to pay their rents? Uh, what else is the district, uh, what else is the union that is looking for in, uh, from the district? This year it is, that, that's actually our main focus. Last year we had an open book negotiation where much of the contract was restructured um, that is why last year we were in negotiations for most of the year because we were looking at the entire contract and that happens usually every three or four years. Uh, this year, the focus is on the financial issues alone, the salaries, health insurance, those benefits. And, um, and one article is being looked at 
for our psychologists, our social workers, our um, speech language pathologists, and our school counselors. The, that article is, is one that has needed refreshing for a while um, to avoid pulling those people to do coverages in classroom or to substitute or proctor tests, for example, because of the high mental health needs of our student population after COVID, we really believe that those people who are clinical service providers need to be in place for the students. Um, and so that is something under discussion as well, but that would be all. Other than that, it's just the financial issues. I want to remind people that our guest is Nancy Villardi, president of the Pinellas Classroom Teachers Association, the teachers union there in Pinellas County. And we're listening, you're listening to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. Before you joined us, Nancy, the, uh, we were talking about how there were, was a lawsuit in, in Florida trying to stop the Stop Woke Act from taking effect. And that and the Don't Say, I'm, I'm sorry, the Don't Say Gay Bill from taking effect. How have new laws in Florida that decide whether, what teachers can and cannot teach in the classroom, how has that affected the teachers themselves and, and what the students are learning and what the teachers are able to, to teach? What have you heard from teachers? Um, what I heard initially was panic. They were not sure what they were allowed to do or say. Um, they were concerned that their job would be on the line because really the laws are both written so vaguely that nobody is fully, completely sure what they actually entail. And unfortunately, I believe they're done, that is done on purpose to cover a wide scope of things. For the most part with the Stop Woke Act, the teachers don't have to change much because they weren't teaching CRT as they were accused of at all. They were not teaching those things to begin with, so they can continue teaching the curriculum that they were teaching all along, which meets all of the requirements of the state and the standards written for Florida. Um, as far as the don't say gay bill, that is predominantly focused on the younger grades. And again, those things were not happening in classrooms. So the change shouldn't be that great that does not prevent teachers from being nervous about exactly what might they may be called out for um, by some overzealous parents. You're listening to 88.5 FM, WMNF Tampa. I'm Sean Canan. It's 1044 in the morning, and you're listening to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe with Nancy Velarde, president of the Pinellas Classroom Teachers Association. And we're talking about new laws that are in Florida that are affecting teachers. We're, we just talked about the teacher contract. And um, I, I want to read this uh, story that came in from the AP today. We heard last week about... Um, or I guess it was about last week when Ron DeSantis decided to make some changes in Broward County. But today, four school board members appointed by Republican Governor Ron DeSantis in one of Florida's most Democratic counties have been sworn in. They replaced the elected board members that DeSantis suspended after a state grand jury found widespread wrongdoing in the Broward County schools. The grand jury recommended their removal. It was impaneled to investigate the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School massacre. And so... Uh, the suspended chairperson says the overturning of the will of the voters is un-American. So Nancy, your thoughts on uh, the independence of school boards and the governor replacing four elected women on, on the Broward County School Board with his own selections. Um, I think 
I think the caller had it exactly right. It is un-American to remove the elected um, people in place. Um, I am not sure exactly why they removed. I do know it was about the investigation over the Marjorie Stone and Douglas, but I'm not sure what exactly would have entailed such a, a strong move. Um, I also know that the four replacements have absolutely no educational background. They are all business people from what I saw, and that is not helpful on a school board. Um, I know that there are people who believe the schools can be run like a business and that thus a business person would be an excellent person in charge. That is not the case. Um, schools are very much not a business because our product are human children. And we, we accept all children, um, whether they are an excellent product from the very beginning or whether they need a little bit of work to become excellent. Um, we, that is the whole point of public education is to allow for all children to have the same access to success and of good future. Um, that is what makes us different. In a business, if you receive uh, products that may not be um, as exactly as you would like them to be, you can just you can discard them. That is certainly not something public education would ever do with their students. So I don't believe that a business mentality is suited to running a school district. You're listening to WMNF Tampa, 88.5 FM. Our guest is Nancy Velarde, president of the... Pinellas Classroom Teachers Association. Let me read these two quick emails that came in. Uh, Greg writes, all of Ron DeSantis's culture war laws are human rights violations and will be defeated. So thank you, Greg, for, for that uh, email. Also, Bubba writes in, he says, these stupid laws are less about the welfare of Florida's children and much more about Ron DeSantis's political ambitions and national fundraising efforts, Bubba says, dump DeSantis. So uh, sounds like a, at least a couple of our listeners out there kind of agree with you, Nancy, that these laws are, are not really helping education, that they're kind of getting in the way of, of proper education. Absolutely. Um, I do believe that they, they singled children out and that will, um, the Stop Woke definitely takes attacks on children of color and of course, the don't say gay, it's obvious who that target, who, you know, that target is. Um, since as, as a teacher for over 20 years, both in New York and here in Florida, most of my time here in Florida, um, I was the sponsor of the Gay Straight Alliance for 18 of those years here. Um, I do know how vulnerable those children are. I do know uh, especially in the beginning when I first started, uh, well, they started the club and asked me to be the sponsor. Um, I absolutely know how vulnerable children are. To be treated as other than or less than is simply unacceptable to do to children. It can damage them for a very long time. And I find these laws to be specifically sing singling certain children out. Over the weekend, we heard some teachers union news. Democratic nominee for governor, Charlie Chris, chose as his running mate a teachers union president. In this case, it's Miami-Dade's Carla Hernandez-Matz. So uh, your thoughts as the president of a, a, a teachers union in a large county in Florida, what are your thoughts about 
the um, maybe it's, what kind of statement is Charlie Crist making by picking a teachers union president as his running mate? Well, I'm absolutely delighted that Carla was picked. I do know Carla somewhat, and she is a dynamo. She is um, she is an excellent person to give the exact right advice about what should be happening for education. Since she was a teacher, she is a parent. Her two children are in public schools. She is obviously been working with the union since 2016. So she does know all of the educational issues and how best to handle them. Um, I do hope, this is my hope, that Charlie Crist is signaling that education will be very much on the forefront of his agenda when he is elected governor. And uh, that would be a wonderful change for the teachers of Florida, uh, rather than being attacked and vilified and accused of some horrific things, uh, they would be supported and understood and uh, championed. So let's get into that dichotomy there. Um, what are you referring to when you say instead of being vilified, teachers will be championed? Uh, who's who's vilifying him and what are some examples? Well, I would imagine, uh, well, some of the legislators are certainly and uh, our governor has come out and said some horrific things about teachers um, and uh, saying that they are um, groomers and indoctrinators and uh, nothing could be further from the truth. It is a very, as I said, teaching for so many years, it is a very strong part of our training on how to present something um, unilaterally and give children all aspects of everything that you um, teach, um, especially as an English teacher with literature. Um, you definitely hit on why the literature was written in the time. So you do hit on history. History and literature are very closely tied together. Um, the presentation of any facts about our history or why literature was composed and what its intent was is given with all sides clearly represented. And that is the entire method of education to allow children to develop the skills to make decisions and weigh information on their own and to be able to become critical thinkers for the rest of their lives. It is the main thrust of education and we've always done it that way. Our guest is Nancy Velarde, the president of the Pinellas Classroom Teachers Association. You're listening to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. It's 10.52 in the morning, and we're talking about education issues in Florida. As you were joining us, Nancy, I was reading a, new, a news article to the audience about how school boards are getting more politicized and how the governor came out and, and campaigned for 30 candidates and donated to 30 candidates. And in response, the Democratic Party came out and endorsed some candidates uh, what can you say about how school boards uh, are becoming? What's what's changing about that? And what um, what do you think about the changes? Do you think that the politiz politicization of school boards is something that's beneficial for education? I absolutely do not. I don't think that politics belong in education at all. Um, as far as the school boards, they were always uh, bipartisan. They were nonpartisan, actually. Um, you were never aware of what a political background was. You were simply looking at the experience level of the person when electing a school board member. I believe that that's the way it should be done. Political ideologies 
don't belong on the school board just the same way they don't belong in the classroom. Um, and we have never done that. Um, I do believe a lot of this is projection when they accuse us of doing something that they themselves are guilty of. Um, I do not believe that politics is, uh, is a good idea for education because we serve all. Our guest is Nancy Velarde, president of the Pinellas Classroom Teachers Association. And you can join the conversation here on WMNF's Tuesday Cafe by emailing us at dj at wmnf.org, texting 813-433-0885 or calling 813-239-9663. We're going to go to the phones in just a minute, but let me read uh, this email that came in. David says, I'm very irritated that DeSantis and the Republicans in the Florida legislature push for these stupid culture war laws for political gain, but these fools know that the laws are unconstitutional, and yet we as Florida taxpayers have to pay lawyers to defend this garbage. What kind of topsy-turvy world are we living in? So maybe I can take David's points that he's trying to make there in that in that email and ask you, Nancy, um, you know, I think a lot of uh, legal analysts might agree that, that, that some of these laws that have been passed, like stop woke, don't say gay, some of them are really questionable on First Amendment grounds and might end up being overturned anyway. So to David's point, um, what are your thoughts about spending resources of the state uh, defending these laws and maybe um, to turn it back to education where those, where those dollars might be better spent? Well, that's exactly the point is um, educate, public education has been grossly underfunded for a, a good long time here in Florida. Um, I know that the in, it, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors going on with how that money is being sent to the school districts. Um, many out there believe that it is very well funded in recent years. That is incorrect. The money that is sent to the school districts has to be shared with the charter schools. A good chunk of that money must go away from the public school uh, funding. We have been underfunded for so long and our children have been denied full funding in the classroom. We are among, we are very, I don't even, I don't know the exact numbers right now, but I know that we are far below average in the nation in the funding per, per pupil spending. And we are certainly almost last, I believe we're 48th in teacher pay. So the, which of course means that we lose teachers on a regular basis. Um, I absolutely could see better uses of that money other than defending laws that really were put in place to give an impression, but actually don't change the classroom because we were not doing the things accused of to begin with. So it, it's, it is a topsy-turvy world and it doesn't make any sense for that money to be spent in that way. Nancy Velarde, we're going to take a, a call in just a minute, but let me ask this question before we go to the phones and with about five minutes left in the show. Uh, I, I read this morning about a new poll by Gallup and here is what the poll says. At 71%, U.S. approval of labor unions is at its highest point since 1965, and there has been a 23-point approval increase since 2010. What in the world is going on with unions? Why are unions becoming so much more popular than they were just 10 years ago? Well, I believe the same thing that happened um, in... Um, uh, <laughs> I'm terrible with years. Uh, that's why I didn't go into history and taught English. <laughs> but 
I think the same thing that happened when you have a middle class that is sinking and a middle class that is rapidly sinking into poverty and the poverty level is completely out of control and people cannot afford to live. And the accrual of wealth is so, so uh, aimed at the top and, and a very small percentage up at the top, unions do become uh, more understood. Unions become more um, friendly. People uh, definitely realize the, the positive nature of a union. Um, while unions had a very bad rap for a very long time, teacher unions included, we are very pro-student. Everything we do keeps the student in mind. What is best? What serves that child the best? Teacher unions are simply groups of teachers and teachers obviously are obsessed with how to best serve their, their students. So across the board, we're seeing unions grow in other organizations. Um, Starbucks, Amazon, um, large organizations are realizing that the uh, use of a union can be very helpful in order to have workers' rights addressed. Um, when you abuse the worker, unions will always be on the rise. We are going to try to take a very quick phone call. Doug, can you make it extremely quick? Yeah. Uh, two points. Um, you know, we advance as a society, and it's sad that um, the governor is trying to quell communication. I definitely agree that funding needs to be uh, up. But my question is, I don't have teaching credentials, but can I become a teacher? That's all. Thanks, Doug. What are your thoughts, Nancy? How how difficult is it for people who aren't already trained teachers to become teachers? And if you can wrap it up in about 30 seconds, that'd be great. <laughs> the, the quality standards are quite high. They are set by the state. Um, there are, of course, um, div different avenues to become teacher a teacher, and uh, some are very, very difficult, some are not. Um, if you're interested in teaching, I would absolutely suggest you look into it. There is no more fulfilling or noble profession. I want to thank you so much for coming on WMNF's Tuesday Cafe today, Nancy. Thank you for having me. Nancy Velarde is president of the Pinellas County Teachers, the Pinellas Classroom Teachers Association. That's the teachers union there in Pinellas County. I want to thank John Dunn for engineering the show today. You've been listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. If you like the programming on 88.5 FM, please consider making a donation at WMNF.org. In this time slot tomorrow, Shelly will host Midpoint and she'll be talking about smart finances. Next up is Wavemakers with Janet and Tom Sherberger. Their guests will be Hillsborough School Board member Karen Perez and consultant Vic DeMaio. They'll be talking about the Hispanic vote. That's coming up after NPR News headlines. This is WMNF Tampa, St. Petersburg, Sarasota, and Lakeland. Thanks so much for listening to WMNF.org.